Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When people see this, when they see SNP headquarters, being searched by police, the house of Nicholas Sturgeon and Peter Morrow being searched by police, and an ongoing live investigation. What do you think this looks like to the public? Does this look like we need to do better, or the SNP needs to do better in relation to transparency and governance? My answer to that is yes. Can people trust that money they give the SNP will be used as intended? Absolutely. Absolutely they can trust uh, that the money that they give to the SNP will of course be spent uh, how, how we uh, advertise it. You've course, been briefed on the finances, has that always been the case? Uh, well look again, I've been briefed on the finances but I couldn't comment on the live police investigation. So you, you can't guarantee that money given well, to the SNP for the purposes of a future referendum hasn't been spent on other matters? I can guarantee you that any penny and any pound that is donated to the SNP is spent of course on, the, on, on furthering the cause of independence. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. Since we last spoke, the home shared by husband and wife, Nicola Sturgeon, the former First Minister, and Peter Murrell, the former SNP Chief, Chief Executive, was searched extensively by many police officers. The SNP party headquarters was also searched, resulting in footage, I think the like of which is really reminiscent of some sort of movie plot, boxes of documents and files being carried out by Police Scotland. A camper van worth around £110,000 was seized by police from the home of Peter Murrell's parents. Peter Murrell himself was arrested. He was detained for around 12 hours before being released without charge, pending further investigation. The current president of the SNP, Mike Russell, who also took over as interim CEO when Peter Murrell was forced to quit for fudging the party membership numbers and leading communications professionals to lie to reporters, described the crisis facing the SNP as the biggest we've ever faced. Western Isles MP Angus McNeil has called for the leadership election to be rerun. The new First Minister, the SNP leader, Hamza Youssef, has described as 
problematic the news that the SNP's financial auditors quit six months ago, and seemingly no one has replaced them. No one knew. Well, sorry, at least the public weren't told. Lots of people probably knew. The SNP's financial problems have spread, reports the Herald this morning, to its £1.5 million a year Westminster group, with the departure of the same auditors who walked away from the party's headquarters. The MP's group has yet to appoint new auditors, despite a legal deadline which is on the not-too-distant horizon. So a quiet podcast for you for you this week. Let's welcome and yet another ferry's broken down. <laughs> and yet another ferry's broken down. <laughs> Hello, Andy McKeever, direct, former director of communications to the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, and that's important for later on. Hello, Andy. Hello, God, you better say former, they'll be on the phone. <laughs> yeah, for, absolutely former. Uh, Jeff Aberdeen's here as well, former chief of staff to First Minister Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Uh, yeah, good morning. And all that we need, in addition to that litany of woe you've just read out, is Phil Mitchell and the dulcet beats of EastEnders to bring in the next uh, episode of this bloody uh, soap opera that we're going through. I can't quite get my head around it. It's absolutely astonishing. We are going to try and dive into it and analyse it all for you on this episode. Uh, email us anytime, by the way. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. And as, yeah, as the soap opera continues, make sure you follow and subscribe for episodes every single week. Right, before we dive into the overwhelming amounts of news, I actually just want to take a couple of minutes to think about our previous couple of episodes, um, which have been really, really good, actually, even if we do say so ourselves. Thank you for listening to, our first of all, our exclusive conversation with Kate Forbes um, a couple of weeks ago. And I suppose, Andy, I, I was kind of reflecting on this in light of, you know, everything that has happened in the last couple of weeks. And where we kind of stand based on based on what we what we spoke to Kate Forbes about and actually just how quickly really everything is, has changed since then. It seems like an awfully long time ago, doesn't it, that we spoke to Kate Forbes? And of course nobody had spoken to Kate uh, before that. Hollywood Sources was the first interview that she gave, um, and then we heard about it for about four or five days afterwards in all the newspapers. And I, I mean, I thought there, there were some um, really fascinating, I suppose you might say, acute issues. Uh, what job she was offered, what job she wanted, what the circumstances were around all of that. Some interesting stuff that she'd said about some of her colleagues, such as Ivan McKee, not getting jobs as well. So that was all quite interesting kind of short-term uh, acute issues. but. I think perhaps more interesting were, were the things that she was saying about some of the long-term issues. So firstly, she said, she effectively said she wasn't going to be a particularly quiet backbencher. That was interesting. You know, she wants to get her teeth into some big policy issues and she's extremely well-equipped uh, to do that. And actually it's been, she's never really had a, I think the interesting thing about Kate Forbes, she's never really had a chance to perform that kind of detailed policy backbench job because she was thrust straight into big cabinet jobs almost straight away. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how she does on that. Hollywood's got a major lack of what you might call, you know, big hitting backbench talent to do that sort of thing. So that'll be fascinating to see what she does on that. Um, and I noticed the other day, one of the big issues we talked about on the podcast, which again, for listeners outside Scotland and for a lot of listeners inside Scotland might not have reached their consciousness yet, but these highly protected marine areas that we talked about, Kate has been talking about them more again uh, on Twitter, especially over the next few days. That's going to be a big issue coming in. Her role in that area could be very interesting. So um, I think what's fair to say from our exclusive chat with her and everything that's happened afterwards is she's not going away. Yeah. 
Very true. Yeah. And Jeff, to add to that, her column that she's now started in the national yeah. paper as well, her latest one today, Wednesday the 12th of April, really pleading with SNP voters not to not to quit. Um, you know, I suppose trying to sort of soak up a bit of the support that she had in the leadership contest and channel it into trying to keep the party together and in existence. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, the uh, she lost the, the contest, uh, the leadership contest, but she might well emerge as the, the long-term winner uh, here. Her stock is particularly high just now. I think the, the way in which she's handled defeat, uh, gracious, um, has been well uh, received. Uh, but most importantly, as Andy points out, she's going uh, to try and, uh, and advance issues of importance to her, as well as those important, uh, of importance to the wider Scottish public and indeed focusing on the economy. I think that the, the decision for her to take on the, the, the national column is actually quite a shrewd move because I think she recognised that perhaps uh, one of her weaknesses was losing a little bit of touch with that core vote uh, and, and that's a way to access that readership and she can use that as a platform to take forward uh, these issues. Um, I do feel um, Kate's decisions going forward are going to be quite crucial for the future of the SNP. I thought it was also really telling that uh, senior uh, ministers in the Scottish Government have said that there's an open door for her to come back into government at any uh, point, uh, and that's quite revealing. So she needs to navigate this carefully. Nobody likes uh, people stirring the pot needlessly. I think she's balanced that pretty carefully in her contributions uh, to date, but it's going to be fascinating to see how she uh, develops her arguments going forward. Another leading figure then of the SNP, Jean Freeman, former Health Secretary, joined us on last week's podcast. Of course, these are still available. Feel free to listen. Scroll back in your feed and you can have a listen to them. Quite interesting just to hear Jean's sort of, I suppose, almost zoomed out ideas of the SNP and, and trying to encourage, based on what she was doing as Health Secretary, um, try to encourage a direction for um, Hamza Yusuf's new government, Andy. Yeah, um, you know, if it wasn't for everything else that's going on in politics, I think the single most fascinating thing to emerge from the Gene Freeman podcast was that just before COVID, three years ago, she was, without the prying eyes of the media or even uh, lots of her colleagues in politics, she was having discussions with the Royal Colleges, with others uh, involved in healthcare about what sounded like a wholesale reorganisation of the NHS. That is really, really interesting that she told us that. And on the back of that, in a question that Jeff asked her, she also said, if they want her help, she's in, she's up for it. She'll come back and help to try to sort the NHS out because, my God, the NHS needs sorted out, right? I mean, I think everybody... I don't think, you know, everybody wants there to be a taxpayer-funded health service that's taxpayer-funded at the point of need, but um, you know this health service isn't working. This health service has crumbled, and it needs to be radically uh, replaced with a, a, a version that is actually going to work. And um, she seems like she's up for helping with that. So I mean, I thought that was a fascinating element of of what she said from a policy perspective. I think the other thing I've reflected on a little bit as well, and it it, it bleeds into the Kate Forbes stuff. It bleeds into some of the things we talked about the Fergus Ewing last week as well, um, and the whole Butte House agreement and, and the approach of the Greens. I asked Jean on the podcast last week about, um, you know, how does how do you tell the business community, how does the government tell the business community that they're happy, they want to listen to them and that they're uh, a key part of, 
of uh, government policy moving forward when you're in coalition with people who don't agree with economic growth in the Green Party. Um, and, you know, Jean is not a right winger, right? Jean was a member of the Communist Party when she was young. Um, she was then with Jack McConnell in Labour. Um, you know, she emphasised in the podcast that she liked Fergus Ewing personally, but she didn't agree with him on much politically. But Jean is saying as well, you know, we we can't have redistribution of wealth without creating the wealth in the first place. And just emphasising this thing we've talked about over recent weeks, that economic growth is not right-wing. Economic growth is the bedrock of all social democratic parties and governments throughout Europe. Um, but it remains a big debate inside uh, the government. Now, I thought it was interesting, just to close off on that point, Neil Gray, one of the very best cabinet secretaries who's been uh, appointed, you know, a real star in the making. And um, when the portfolios were released last week, uh, I noticed that an official part of his role is actually economic growth. It's written there in black and white. And that's quite an interesting signal being sent. I think it's a flare being sent up to the business community to say, look, I know you're nervous about the cooperation agreement with the Greens and I know you're nervous about what they're saying, but we do believe in economic growth. Look, it's right there in this guy's title. So, I mean, I thought that was quite quite interesting as well. But this, um, uh, you know, this yin and yang between the Greens and the SNP on the sort of basic, the basics of how to run an economy is still ongoing. Look, just going back to the, the, the overall kind of messages from, from Jean Freeman podcast, I, I was just struck by how substantial she is. Okay, people are free to disagree with her, and rightly so, this is politics and all's fair and love and war. But she just came across as a very substantial figure with a lot to offer. Now, on that question I asked her, you know, would you be tempted back in some sort of advisory role? I would be hoping that those in the Scottish government, Hamza, uh, Shona and Neil uh, particularly are listening to that and saying, do you know what, that is a way in which we can explore how we can fundamentally reform the NHS. And I actually believe that in a normal political cycle, out with all this uh, furore that's going on with party finances, that podcast would have you know, received a lot more um, coverage. It has done really well, and I believe there's a column from Eddie Barnes today as well, reflecting on what she said in it. Mm. But I would listen carefully to what she's saying and consider how to find a way in which we can utilise her expertise on behalf of the entire country on such an important issue. On the economic growth thing, we, we've returned to this time and time again. Mm. Um, Hamza needs to decide, and Neil Gray, and I totally agree, I spoke to Neil last week, and he's got a real ambition and energy about him. I think they really need to set aside exactly what they are going to do in terms of improving the economy. And yes, fundamentally underpin that by sustainable economic growth. And if they do that and really chart a course that's quite distinctive to what's gone before with all the business relations and all the uh, interactions that you must do, personal interactions you must do in that role, then perhaps there is a way through on that critical policy area. <clears throat> So, Gene Freeman and Kate Forbes, in conversation, available for you in the previous two episodes. Uh, thank you for listening to those, if you already have. Let us know what you think. Email anytime. Hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address. And I should say as well that, you know, today we are going to dive in, um, the three of us, into the issues that are, you know, currently present in Scottish politics. 
But we are going to have lots more conversations with lots more influential people. We'll hear from unionists, politicians, Labour, the Conservatives. And we're open to your suggestions as well. Who do you want to hear in conversation on this podcast? Because I think actually it offers quite a unique place for politicians to speak and to have their say, or indeed people who have influenced politics, not just politicians, over the last number of years. Uh, so if there's somebody that you're absolutely dying to hear from, um, you know, in conversation in a longer format than you might just see in a clip on the news, uh, then feel free to email hello at hollywoodsources.com. And we should say as well, Callum, in answer to my um, erstwhile colleagues in the Tory party and our, our friends across the unionist movement, yes, we will have people who vote no in referendums <laughs> as well as people who vote yes in referendums on this podcast over the next few weeks. I think they can all understand why we had Kate Forbes on. Absolutely. It is uh, Wednesday, it's the 12th of April, this is Holyrood Sources. Right, let's get into all the drama, the soap opera that's surrounding the SNP. I mean, a very important soap opera, it has to be said. I actually just wanted to, to start this by glancing at Scotland's newspaper front pages today. Uh, the Scotsman, demand for end to SNP secrecy in cash probe. The Scottish Daily Express, hums are told, it's time for the secrecy to end. The Scottish Daily Mail stench is growing over SNP finances. The Herald front page, SNP hid resignations of auditors for six months, Yusuf reveals. Uh, the Metro goes on a similar line, SNP without auditor for six months. Uh, the Daily Telegraph, Yusuf did not know SNP auditors quit months ago. Um, and the Daily Record, uh, exclusive coronavirus motorhome, carry-on campaign. That, that now notorious, infamous motorhome that was seized by police looking at SNP finances. Uh, it, apparently, it was to be used for campaigning, according to a party insider, and that never came to fruition. Uh, right. The, the air of secrecy, I think, first of all, Jeff, is the first thing here. Just the lack of transparency about, about finances, about the various ins and outs of the auditors. I, it's such a basic thing to say, but what a mess. Uh, what a mess indeed, and... I can't help feel a little bit sorry for Hamza Youssef, uh, who's taken over this uh, leadership role and had to contend with all of this stuff. Now, I feel pretty strongly that, you know, this is crisis communications 101 here. Um, and there is this kind of uh, trend of drip feeding a lot of these stories in day after day, extending the story um, uh, that's happening. And, and it's it's totally... Um, involuntary, I'm sure. But if I were Hamza, I'd be saying, right, OK, uh, let's get everyone in a room, the relevant people across the party, who knew what and when, find out the true extent of this and be as transparent as possible with the public. Failure to do that will just see a continuance of this drip drip of negative stories. And there's time now, I think, for decisive action. Uh, and there's going to have to be some difficult decisions ahead, no doubt. But he needs to stamp his leadership on this party. It, it, I don't think it's it's uh, good enough now to say, oh, no, I wasn't aware and I'm just finding out and, oh, you know, woe is us. It's now time to stamp his leadership on this. Um, and I'd really like to see that done uh, sooner rather than later. Otherwise, you know, you can see a situation where this, you know, the whole thing drowns and he's uh, caught up in a morass largely not of his making, 
But that's irrelevant now. He is the leader. The buck stops with him. And now it's time for decisive action. Let's have a little listen to the First Minister. He has um, published a video message on Twitter. Uh, this is not the whole thing, but this is a minute and 20 of it. We are currently going through a period of change, a period of transition. And of course, such periods can be difficult. I recognise that. But we should take heart in just how far we've come and not lose faith that together we can take the final steps towards independence. We are the largest political party in Scotland. Support for independence remains steady at around 50%. Despite the difficulties of the past weeks, there's not a party in the land that isn't looking at our support in the polls or indeed our membership numbers with envy. But that support is not and never will be taken for granted. The Scottish people continue to put their faith in us because we are united and delivering on what matters to them. In my first full week as First Minister, I've focused on the priorities of the Scottish people, tackling the cost of living crisis, reducing child poverty, defending our parliament, and ensuring our economy works for everyone. But to truly transform our country, to take forward bold and ambitious changes to our economy, to our society, and crucially, to rid Scotland of Tory governments for good, we need independence. And to win our independence, we must be united. Andy McKeever. Look, well, it's all a bit polished for me, I have to say. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, it's actually the fault of people like me and Jeff, because we've spent our previous careers making sure that our politicians knew exactly how to answer a question and were polished and smooth and so on. But actually, I think we're in an era now where people want a little bit more uh, reality. They want a bit more grit um, and a bit more straight talk from politicians. And um, Hamza's video message was a little bit too professional for me, a little bit too slick for my liking. But actually, there's a deeper thing, I think, here. I mean, what Jeff said is right. Okay, He's the leader now, so... It doesn't have to have been his fault what's gone on before. It doesn't have to have been his fault. It's, his, it's him now, uh, and he's got to deal with it. If, if one thing has characterised the last, you know, six months, arguably 18 months, of Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, it's the kind of, um, you know, look away, there's nothing to see here vibe. Um, and there was quite a lot of that, not just about what was going on inside the SNP, but generally about, you know, government performance on key public services, for instance. And there's nothing to see here. Um, we're better than England. It's fine. Stop talking about it. You know, stop criticising us. All that stuff. And that, ha that was a feature. I, if I was advising Hamza, would say, don't fall into the same trap as that. Um, and I thought aspects of that video message did risk falling a little bit into that trap. Nothing to see here. Everything is fine. Let's just move on. Look at how great a job we've done in the first week. Um, so, I mean, I think that is an issue that they need to just tinker a little bit with the tone. I think one other thing that emerges from it for me is a question of audience. They're no longer talking, or they shouldn't be talking to the same people they were talking to before the result of the leadership contest was announced. It's a different audience now. He's not a campaigner to be SNP leader anymore. He's now the First Minister, and he's got to talk to the country. Um, now, I understand that the members and the politicians and the supporters may want to say, look how close we are to independence, we've done really well, everything is good. 
That's not the message that the rest of the country is wanting to hear right now. So uh, I'm not saying he ignores the first group of people. He's the leader of the SNP. He has to pay attention to the first group of people, but he's also now the first minister. Um, and so I think that the message uh, and the intended recipients of that message just have to be taken into account a little bit more in the way that he goes about things. It's not, you know, it's doable. It's not difficult to do. I think he just has to change the tone a little bit, change the message a little bit, um, and just think a little bit more about a broader audience rather than a narrower SNP audience. But, but Andy, I mean, uh, I think we're going to have a bit of a disagreement here, which is <laughs> oh always God. welcome oh, on our podcast. Um, I'll accept, let me start where I agree on the audience. I think that's a point that's well made and he needs to think carefully about who he is communicating to. But give the guy a break. I mean, what's he meant to say? Um, uh, he's got to try and uh, encourage and reassure his core base. Um, and I recognise why he has done that. Now, OK, on style and substance, perhaps that can be improved, but he's still very early in the job. Um, and yes, he needs advice on how to make it that little bit more personal. But I do think it had to be said. But I go back to my other original point is you're not going to be able to speak to that broader audience on the public policy issues that you seek to advance unless you can draw a line showing strong leadership under this current SNP furore. And that's when I'm talking about decisive action, understanding exactly what's happened, who knew what and when, and being as transparent as possible with the wider public. If you can do that, then you can advance on to those issues of governance that you want to take forward. But until that's done, it's going to be very difficult uh, to emanate from what is a mess that, as I said earlier, is in danger of drowning the party. Yeah. I mean, that, yes, I agree, but is he doing that in what he's saying? So he could come out and say, look, this is a horrific mess. Um, it's, no, it's not my fault, but it's a massive mess and I'm going to sort it and I don't care who I have to step on to sort it. I'm going to sort this out. That's what I'm going to do. Actually, what he seems to be to me saying more is, this is a mess and it's being worked on, but don't worry, we're still at 40%. And I just think that that, I think the, the balance of the, uh, you know, the balance of the negative and the positive is just not quite right. Yeah. And I think, I think fair, fair, fair comment. And I think what Hamza's got to be careful of is not trying to be all things mm. to all people. He's a guy that whoever, you know, you talk to uh, across the party, you know, he's likeable, he's amenable. We had him up in Aberdeen, a ministerial visit. He went down very well in terms of what he was saying to a lot of industry leaders up here. But you can't be all things to all people in that role. It is impossible. And particularly when dealing with this party issue, which is the, the immediate priority, there are going to be difficult decisions that need to be made. And he's going to have to take them. Um, and, and, and it'll be fascinating to see in the coming days, whether he will indeed take them. And, and you cannot do that role. I've worked this out alongside a First Minister for seven years. You cannot do that role uh, without upsetting the apple cart from time to time. Mm. Uh, and, and perhaps this is a time where he needs to really establish strong leadership 
take those difficult decisions and move forward from there. To what extent is he is he absolutely weighed down, Jeff, by the continuity candidate label, which let's not forget, at one point during the campaign he was quite happy about, you know, he was he was kind of embracing yeah. it almost. But actually, does that mean that he is, rightly or wrongly, tarred with the same brush as the crises that we're now seeing unfold? Yeah, and I think the way to look at that is, let's just imagine for a second that Kate Forbes had won the election, became first minister, would she be able to navigate this situation with a bit more of a credible platform than Humza? Yes, the answer is probably yes, because she had made the case, and Ash Reagan too, mm. for fundamental change and reform of uh, the party and indeed some of the government's priorities. But we are where we are. And, uh, and that continuity candidate, yes, that label has probably hindered him somewhat, but he has the opportunity now to change that. Yeah. The contest is done. It, yeah. it, when you move forward, we live in a, an unreal political cycle of um, uh, 24 hours news all the time. You can move that cycle on. He has the platform. He is the first minister of Scotland, for goodness sake. Uh, he now needs to show that, chart his own direction, be his own person and not be um, always kind of overshadowed by the, the successor to Nicola Sturgeon, so to speak. Mm. If you put all this SNP stuff aside, you still have a new first minister coming into the most difficult entry a first minister has ever come into. Yeah. Um, there are public service problems. I mean, we talked slightly jokingly about the ferries yeah. earlier on. The ferries are not a joke. Yeah, you know, this, absolutely. For people who live in the islands and for people who depend on a ferry, this is light, you know, this is business threatening. This is a, a major, major issue uh, in, in all of these communities. And it isn't a joke. And I tell you something, the Scottish government have got to sort this out. It's not that difficult to run a ferry service. It's not as difficult as they're making it look. And they really have to sort that. But, but, you know, aside from that, he's coming into an incredibly difficult entry and he's coming into a situation where SNP support has been falling. They're still in the lead. And that is in many ways remarkable after such a long period of government, actually. They're still in the lead, but it is falling. And the independence campaign, as a result of the Supreme Court's decision to not allow the Scottish Parliament to, um, to hold an independence referendum, the independence campaign is nowhere. It's nowhere. I mean, it's further back than it has been for a decade. So he's already coming into a really difficult situation anyway. And it does make you wonder whether, um, in more reflective moments over the last couple of weeks, I do sometimes wonder, is Kate Forbes sitting there thinking, phew, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. I have dodged a bullet mm. there. And mm. actually, you know, maybe there's a silver lining to this cloud of not winning this leadership contest. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm sure nobody would ever admit that. No, Obviously, of course. The winner, of what, course. You know, everybody wants to win and everybody wants to be first minister. You can see this down south with Rishi Sunak. You know, I often think to myself, why in the hell does Rishi Sunak want that time-limited job mm. at his age, which is effectively career-ending for him? And the answer is nobody can resist being prime minister. And yeah. to a degree, it's the same. Nobody can resist being first minister. You get the chance, you go for it. It's like an automatic instinct. But as I say, I do wonder whether this will turn out to be the job that nobody should have wanted. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I remember once hearing from uh, Craig Oliver, who's a Downing Street director of communications a few years ago, and uh, he was describing how people who he, he never he's never understood people who want to lead, who want to be prime minister, and who in you know by extension want to be first minister because they're just built differently. He can't understand that that feeling. Mm-hmm. But he says within all of them there is that feeling that they will all have a Churchill moment and be able to declare victory over something, whatever that something is. They will have a victory that they can shout about, and that's what drives people, which I think is an interesting consideration. Mm-hmm. I do just want to yep. feed in just in all of that. The, um, the kind of polling, um, so uh, Professor Sir John Curtis has been writing in the Times this morning saying that the link between the Yes movement that championed independence in 2014 and the SNP is at breaking point. That's how it's been written up. Uh, John Curtis saying that support for the SNP has fallen in the four most recent polls and is now on average more than nine percentage points lower than support for independence, which stands at 48%. That's an interesting one, Jeff, isn't it? Because... At the core of Hamza Yusuf's first couple of weeks has been independence. He mentioned it again um, quite strongly in his video message on Twitter. But actually, it's 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 sort of it's about the independence movement and the SNP. Uh, can one exist with, without the other? Does one do damage to the other? And and sort of is there a is there an unbreakable link in even in our own thinking and psychology between the two? Yeah, I mean, I, I read that piece by John Curtis today, and um, it doesn't make pleasant reading if you're an SNP persuasion. But if I was to look for a solace or a morsel of hope in this, um, there is that that independence vote seems to be holding up pretty well. And so what we may be seeing is that soft kind of SNP voter that is you know, um, navigating towards the Labour Party as a route to getting rid of the Tories, um, but would still be open to independence thereafter. And I suppose this creates the case, does it not, for a wider movement um, that is independent of the SNP, truly independent of the SNP, and tries to speak to all Ertz and Peerts that have that persuasion. That is perhaps a route forward. Um, it's very difficult, though, because if you take the current trend in polling at the general election uh, and the SNP lose you know, around 20 seats or, or, or so, how does that leave the party's ability to advance the case for independence ahead of the 2026 Holyrood election. And if you haven't got an independence majority in Holyrood, then the the issue really is dead for a generation. So it's how do you navigate that opportunity to attract that strong and steady independence support at the appropriate time when you need it towards the SNP or bring some of those voters back from Labour potentially to ensure that you have that independence majority? Back in 2014, or actually 2013, or whenever the campaign proper started for the referendum, Alex Salmond, and obviously Jeff will have rather more knowledge of this than me, um, but uh, Alex Salmond really, from the very launch of the Yes Scotland campaign, Alex Salmond welcomed the left in uh, very strongly. And that is what led 
in effect, to going from, you know, 30-odd percent of support to 45 percent of support come referendum time is that the left deserted Labour and deserted unionism uh, and voted yes. And and that was the that was the foundation for the SNP's massive win in 2015 and all the SNP wins since then is that they took Labour's vote from them and they haven't given it back yet. Um, and I, 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 but... I think, though, and incidentally, Labour think better together in the alliance with the Tories is the reason why they became devastated. I've never agreed with that. I think the reason they lost is because all their left-wing vote went to the SNP. Um, but I wonder now if that is starting to have the reverse effect. Because if you look back to 2014, to be very crude about it, the main reason why the 45% wasn't over 50% is that those with... Um, an economic head-on, uh, who were unemotional really about unionism, but who were much more pragmatic, just looked at that and thought, nah, I don't think so. It's mm. not not for me. Better the devil you know, I think. Um, and those people have not switched to yes since 2014. In fact, there is a reasonable argument to say that more of them have come back because they, they think the economic case, case is even weaker and it hasn't been made. And this gets back to your question about um, you know the movement and the party. I have to say, over the last six or so months, I've more and more wondered to myself whether independence can, in fact, be delivered when the SNP is this broader church, or whether it actually does need to break in order to deliver independence, so that there is a more of a, a, a leftist type of party that can appeal to those, you know, labour-orientated supporters, but then also a party which can appeal to people in the centre and on the centre-right, which is pretty well focused on the economy and focused on saying, look, we can make you richer if you vote for independence, because the reality is that's not there and it is holding a lot of people back. And I just don't know, if you open the front door to those people, don't the lefties run out the back door at the same time? I'm not sure if, I don't know if you can achieve all of this with, I don't know if you can make the church that broad, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going into uh, a whole new podcast, or probably series of podcasts here, I reckon. Uh, so I'm not going to comment on everything you've said, Andy, because I know we've got other things we want to discuss today. But let me just say this. I am pretty disappointed in the least uh, to see that since 2014, recognising that where the Yes campaign lost was on convincing that centre ground type of voter who, as you rightly put it, looked at it on the day and went, I quite like to vote for independence, but I'm just not sure that we can economically afford it or we have the, the platform to, to, to be successful. If we accept that that is where it was lost, and I think we all do, then why has there been no significant case made, argument made, prospectus, analysis to really advance that core economic proposition. And that must be the big regret that Nicola Sturgeon has. The independence vote has not increased substantially in public polling to the level that you require it to in order to really move Westminster opinion. And that has to be a focus of any SNP First Minister and anyone in favour of independence. If you want to win, you have to reach to that broad church. So it's not a case of, I'm not sure they can, they have to. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to Alex Hammond, he recognised that and managed to keep that broad church largely together. And, and, and that has to be done again. There is no other route to it, in my opinion. 
Um, I, I, and I'll be listen, and, and the reason I think it's probably not worth too much discussion today is we're a hell of a long way from that, guys, right now. Mm. Um, and I think that's another thing that has to be accepted by uh, um, the broad uh, base that's in favour of independence. Because if these polls continue, as I say earlier, it's all very well that you've got an independence at 47, 48, 49% staying reasonably steady. But if you don't have a pro independence majority, how do you advance the case mm. beyond that? Westminster say no, no chance. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all multifaceted problems that, that, that the new administration has to contend with. Um, and I have to say, I don't envy them. Yeah. Uh, just by way of uh, a couple of other quick considerations on the new administration, then I want to talk about sort of issues within the SNP briefly by using names, by using people from within the SNP. First of all, Angus McNeil, uh, the MP for the Western Isles, calling for the leadership contest to be rerun. Uh, what do we make of that, Andy? Um, I think it's a total non-starter, to be honest. And I, I don't think that uh, Kate Forbes would advocate for that to happen uh, at all. Um, you you do... There comes a point where you have to accept some core integrity. Now, it may be that all has not been well in the SNP, but I don't think anybody has seen any evidence that you know, there was any dodgy counting or that there was actual impropriety in the counting of these votes at that election. And I do think there comes a point, you know, I, I look back a little bit, we've mentioned the Murdo Fraser campaign that I um, helped him with back in 2011. You know, we had massive concerns about how the party was behaving um, and the backing that they were giving to Ruth Davidson during that campaign. But we didn't think that they had fiddled the actual numbers. But you isn't know, it isn't it more isn't it more about the, the the overall issue of transparency as as a whole? Because there's a question here, isn't there, about how the party that for years has claimed to speak for the people of Scotland, how can they show such contempt for the people of Scotland so as to hide things from them for well at least months in the case of the auditors? And so actually, it feeds a kind of bigger question about transparency as a whole. Yeah, yes, it does, but. I think there'd be more legitimacy in it if it was an internal election run by the SNP. As they themselves have said on several occasions, it was run by a third party. Um, it was run by a third party organisation. And I, as I say, I think that when temperatures are high like this, there does you have to draw a line somewhere. Um, and I, as I say, I think the, the key protagonists in the leadership election themselves would probably draw the line there. I don't think they would be looking for a rerun. I'm not sure... How, how, how is it going to, you know, how is it going to help anybody, realistically? Yeah, yeah, no, just very quickly, uh, nail on the head, Andy. I mean, uh, the key protagonists in the race are not calling for that. Uh, if they were, well, there might be a different conversation uh, ongoing. The cynic in me suggests that what you said earlier might be true as well, and they've looked at it and quite happy that the bullet has been dodged. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> on you go, Hamza, crack on, and, and all the best to you. Now, uh, I... I I think that the, the only thing that this serves to do interventions like this is create more confusion right. and uncertainty at a time where you need more stability and certainty. So I just think it's a non-starter. Can I ask you that the, the question about transparency as well, though, Jeff? Do you, I mean, do you feel sort of affronted? Do you feel let down by the by what is emerging as a lack of transparency? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I I'm pretty flabbergasted and bemused. Um, and disappointed in all honesty. I worked alongside a lot of these people mm. and uh, I, I just can't get my head around 
one, the political ineptitude of not thinking the stuff would come out at some point clearly and thinking it's okay we don't have to tell anyone it's all right i i, I cannot understand that but secondly yeah uh, this is the perception is everything in politics as we discussed before and the perception is you guys have been at it uh, and that needs to be addressed as a priority and i honestly don't know if this is part of a, a malicious series of decisions or whether this is just a little bit of incompetence throughout but either way it's not particularly helpful mm. um, and, and I say again this is why these things need to be addressed and sadly it's fallen on Hamza Youssef as leader of the party as first minister to sort this mess out and to take real strong leadership and decisions so that we can move forward my, my fear really is here guys that this becomes quite a you know a, a seminal moment if we look back in a couple of years ago remember that mess that great that now that there's a real chance that that could be the case but there is a window opportunity here to try and solve all this, but it is getting smaller all the time. Right, okay, so that's the idea of a, of a leadership rerun and the kind of, you know, the overall issue of transparency. From that, then, let's discuss Mike Russell, who's a big figure in the SNP, uh, clearly. Um, here is his line. In my 50-year association with the party, this is the biggest and most challenging crisis we have ever faced, certainly while we've been in government. He goes on, but I have an obligation to this party and the movement for Scottish independence that's been such a massive part of my life for so long. Um... Andy, I felt when I was when I was kind of reading that, you can feel in the second part of that that sort of longing for this not to be the case and the and the sort of situation the SNP finds itself in, and yet some sort of recognition of the scale of the challenge that is now being faced by the party. And I just thought you could almost hear Mike Russell kind of aching as he was, you know, as he was thinking it, writing it, saying it. Yeah, but I think it's genius, and I think that Hamza should be following him and doing the same thing. I mean, if, if Hamza needs to do one thing since becoming leader and first minister, it is to manage expectations. He needs to go on a massive expectation management exercise in terms of um, results at parliamentary elections, yeah. defending 48 seats at Westminster, defending 64 seats at Holyrood, neither of which I would imagine he will be able to replicate at the next two elections. Yeah. Massive expectation management issue there. Huge expectations management issue on independence. Mike Russell also said that, you know, independence was not coming anytime soon. I think Hamza Yusuf should now be saying the same thing because it's not. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, if you look at the last decade or so, independence to me as an observer is clearly further away than it has been at any time since the referendum. It's arguably further away than it has been since the SNP won their majority in 2011. It's not really at the top of people's risk registers at the moment. It is seen to be well down the line. Um, and also expectation management about the party and just what the party can achieve compared to what it has over the last few years. So I think Mike Russell, he I'm sure has been saying it out of um, you know genuine uh, heart and, and feeling, but actually it is a politically sensible strategy to severely, severely manage expectations and to basically come out and say, look, all is not well. Right. So prepare yourselves for the fact that all is not well. We're going to do our best, but we're in a new era now and things are just not as easy as they were before. So I think it can work politically very well for them. And I think Hamza should be following. Yeah, Andy, can I ask you then? I mean, accepting what you say uh, about managing expectations, uh, I think that's well made. What do you, you make of the apparent 
uh, moves from Hamza to, to reignite the gender recognition legal challenge. Um, does that not endanger just further dividing uh, the party and indeed the, the you know the, the the wider the movement and general public? Because that was the experience that we had before Christmas. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's quite a few angles to this. I can see the merit in challenging, forget about the issue just for the moment. I can see the merit in challenging a Section 35. I think it's not been done before in a quarter century of devolution. Um, and I think this needs tested, actually. So I am interested to see what the outcome of this challenge is, because I think the ability of Westminster to do that, and I think the jury is out as to why Westminster did it. Could they really not have done it ever in the last 25 years on any issue? Did it just happen to be the issue where they knew the SNP government was highly vulnerable um, on this very totemic, you know, blue touch paper issue? So I think I think it needs tested. And from that point of view, I think it's interesting. And um, if Hamza was able to combine a message saying, look, we need to keep the power of Westminster in check and we need to just test this to make sure they can't just do this at will. If he was able to do that, combining it with saying, however, I realise that we have not done gender recognition properly. I realise that there are a lot of very legitimate concerns from people out there that are not transphobic concerns, they are legitimate concerns principally around the safety of women and girls in the bill, but also around the best practice that has been existing for years outside of this bill that is already taking place in prisons and in schools and all over the place. And if he was to come out and say, I realise there are issues, I realise we have to look at that, and try to combine both of those messages. I'm going to challenge a section 35 on constitutional grounds, but I'm also going to change gender recognition legislation because I know that you guys are concerned about this. I think he could pull something off there. But we have talked about the green dog, have we not, over the last few weeks. <laughs> I don't think he can get away with changing anything about the gender recognition legislation without severely questioning the viability of that cooperation agreement with the Green Party. Mm. Mm, which is something Gene Freeman flagged on last week's episode as well, wasn't it? You know, try to clarify these points of difference. So there is distinctiveness. I mean, there are different political parties that, that should be yeah. allowed and that I mean, should be inherent. Exactly. What do, you, do you think, that, is that just too, um, you know, am I in the clouds thinking, Jeff, that he can combine that, that <coughs> constitutional challenge but try and separate it from the issue and actually change the legislation at the same time? Yeah, it's it's a it's a very it's a listen it's a feasible strategy to take. I suppose my reticence is, um, you know, people back winners, and if you lose that legal challenge, and, and none of us have got the legal advice, you know, at, at to hand yet, and I, crucially, perhaps neither does Hamza at this stage. But if he loses that, does that not just render him a little bit more impotent? That would be the big risk with what your strategy, um, uh, with your strategy that you outline. But you're also right. I mean, look, the, 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 we've talked again, and we're going to, you know, revisit it very briefly. But there has to be a, a visit, revisiting of the rules of engagement with the Greens. Do they want to see some legislation that advances this cause or not? And at some point, there's going to be have to have a hard conversation about this to see if it can be uh, advanced in any way. 
Let's just finally spend a couple of minutes talking about opposition because Douglas Ross committed news at the weekend by suggesting tactical voting might be a way to basically kick the SNP Wilder down, I think, is a, is a kind of frank way to put it. Uh, Andy, would you be advising tactical voting? The idea here being, um, you know, vote for... If, if you're... He was saying, the Conservative, Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party leader was saying, tactically, you should vote for Labour if it means keeping the SNP out. Well, you have mentioned the key... Four I read words. your article. I read your article. Actually, I, I, oh, I know it so well least, that I got... At least one person did. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's I, hard not I, I to. When he, are, when he posted uh, it in the WhatsApp group, I feel obliged. Do you know something? I know the issue so... <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, I know the issue so well that I actually got the number of words wrong. It's five words, not four. <laughs> uh, Scottish... <laughs> Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. Six. It's actually six. No, it's five. Um, look, that's it. That is the issue. The Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, because there is nuance behind this whole drive for tactical voting. And the nuance is that the unionism and the conservatism can often work against each other. Um, in Scotland, the elected members and the party members are far more interested in unionism than they are in conservatism. Unionism comes first and conservatism comes second. You go down to England and it is the opposite. Conservatism comes first and unionism comes second. And when you have that, um, you know, that is, a, that, that is a tension within this party. And when that tension exists, you get fights like the one that happened over the weekend. Because for a unionist, this is a good strategy. Why would you not want more unionist parties to win seats? So it's a perfectly good strategy for a unionist, and it has been employed well in the past. I'm sitting here in the People's Republic of Edinburgh South, <laughs> one of the most affluent constituencies in the country which voted for Labour during the Corbyn years. Now, there are not enough Marxists in Morningside, let me tell you, to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. They are doing it because they are Tories who want the SNP out and they voted Labour. The same thing happened next door in Edinburgh West, where they all voted for Christine Jardine. Um, and she is now the MP for the Liberal Democrats. But where it didn't happen, this is back to 2017, where it did not happen, but was supposed to happen, was in Joanna Cherry's seat over my other shoulder in Edinburgh South West. They were supposed to vote for the Tories there, but they didn't. They voted Labour, and Labour got 25% out of the vote, and it stopped the Tories from winning. So there's the rub, right? The Tories will vote for Labour, the Tories will vote for the Lib Dems, but nobody will vote for the Tories. And that's why this strategy can never be replicated because Labour and the Lib Dems think the Tories are too toxic. They will never push their supporters to voting Tory in a million years. It simply won't happen. So it's a good unionist strategy, but it's a horrible conservative strategy. That's the other side of this. It's a horrible strategy for conservatism and for the centre-right because what you are doing is you are minimising ideological politics in favour of maximising constitutional politics. People have talked before about the Ulsterisation of Scottish politics and they've been criticised for it, but I think they're right. Scottish politics is being Ulsterised. Scottish politics is increasingly based on nationalism um, and on national identity rather than on political identity. And what this does is it just further pushes us down that road and it further minimises the centre-right as a, a sort of viable entity. Jeff, is this a misstep from Douglas Ross or has he done something actually quite well, all right? 
I, w- I wouldn't say it's a, a misstep, uh, given it's he's made his intervention in the context of the ongoing, uh, uh, you know, Ferrari around the SNP finance. Mm. So it hasn't got huge coverage. But I have no issue with him taking a flyer on the basis that he's got nothing really to lose. I think they've got six <laughs> seats in Scotland. Uh, if current projections are right, Labour are going to take quite a large swathe of seats in the central belt. Um, he needs to hold on to those six seats, maybe pick up one on a very good day if there's some sort of rebound of the Tory vote, which there's some evidence of that down south. Can that translate up uh, north as well? So I don't think he's got much uh, to lose. Of course, the Labour Party won't be best pleased <laughs> uh, with that. And perhaps that's also a wee bit of a jibe to them as well. You know, tactical voting took place in 2021 in the Scottish elections. It, it did. Uh, and it probably stopped the SNP getting an outright majority uh, in actual fact. How these parties, the opposition parties, play this is very important. Now, no doubt Labour will want nothing to do with, uh, publicly at least, or um, uh, in campaigning terms, to do with this suggestion from Douglas Ross, although they'll be secretly hoping that one or two seats do follow that tactical voting route. But in terms of Douglas Ross, I don't think it's a misstep. When you've got very little to lose, there's no no, no harm in having a flyer. <laughs> <laughs> and and remember, remember as well, if you offer your average Scottish Tory member and even potentially your average Scottish Tory MSP, if you say to them, look, you can either have a strong Tory party in government at Westminster, but you also have to put up with a strong SNP at the same time, or you can have Labour in government at Westminster with the SNP decimated, they will choose the latter every day of the week and twice on Sunday. (laughs) Andy and Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Uh, So good to speak to you today on Holyrood Sources. There you go, crisis comms, can prevent, closing windows and the Conservatives. Uh, Great to have you with us on Holyrood Sources. Make sure you follow and subscribe. We drop into your podcast feed every single week to keep you up to date with what's going on and bring you insider insight on exactly what it all means. Email us anytime. Hello at holyroodsources.com is the email address and we'll speak to you next week. 